I'm Akiva Fox, and this is Clear Shakespeare, the read-along Shakespeare podcast. Welcome to part three of Clear Shakespeare Midsummer Night's Dream. If you enjoy the Clear Shakespeare podcast, I hope you'll take a second to visit clearshakespeare.com support and kick in a few bucks to make this all possible. Also, please follow the podcast on iTunes, and if you like it, please leave a good review. Thanks a lot. Now, open your copy of A Midsummer Night's Dream to Act 2, Scene 2, and we'll begin. So remember from the last episode that Oberon was talking about a place where Titania sleeps for part of the night? Well, now we're seeing that place. We see her and her whole train of fairies. Maybe she's already reclining in her bed of flowers. And she says to them, Come, now a roundel and a fairy song. A roundel is another one of those circle dances, sometimes also called a roundelay. And it can also refer to any simple song that has a refrain in it. But here it's probably that dance, because she says she also wants a fairy song. And she goes on, Then, for the third part of a minute, hence... So the first two parts of the minute are the roundel and the fairy song. And the third part of a minute, they're supposed to go hence. They're supposed to leave from here. That thing about a minute may just be a reference to how time is different to these magical creatures who are immortal. So they can do a whole dance in 20 seconds and a song in 20 seconds, and then they can leave in 20 seconds. And maybe that seems like hours to them. So why is she telling them to go away? Well, she gives them jobs. She says, some to kill cankers in the musk rose buds, some war with rare mice for their leathern wings to make my small elves coats, And some keep back the clamorous owl that nightly hoots and wonders at our quaint spirits. That's a lot of jobs. And notice they're all natural world jobs. It's what the fairies do. So some of them have a job to kill cankers, which are these little worms or caterpillars that eat buds from the inside out. And what buds are they in? The musk rose buds. Remember Oberon talked about them as part of her bower? It's a very strong smelling flower. So she's trying to keep them alive by having her fairies kill off the things that would destroy them. And then another job, to war with rare mice. Rare mice is an archaic term for bats because they look like mice with wings. And what's this war over? Well, she wants their wings to make coats for her small elves, in other words, for her fairies. Notice, by the way, that these are both violent jobs. These are not cute fairies. They're killing things. They're killing these canker worms, and they're killing bats to get their wings. They're going to rip the wings off of them to make coats for themselves, like little leather jackets. You know, they're basically like a fairy motorcycle gang. But we're going to see this again and again. They have violent jobs. And what's another thing they have to fight off? They have to keep back the clamorous owl. Clamorous means noisy. That nightly hoots, that's the noise, and wonders at our quaint spirits. Not wonders like, what's up with the quaint spirits? It means to stare curiously at them with those big owl eyes. And quaint, not in our modern sense. Here it means pretty or elegant. And the spirits are another name for the fairies and the other supernatural creatures. So these owls are bugging me. Please chase them off. So now that they all have their jobs, she says... So now that they all have their job assignments, she asks for that dance and song. She says, sing me now asleep. In other words, sing me to sleep. Then to your offices and let me rest. Offices are their jobs. So it's a repetition of what she asked for at the beginning. And then there's a song, which in many productions is an excuse for lots of music and dancing. It's sort of a production number. And you'll notice it goes back to that weird fairy rhythm, which is different from the iambic pentameter. It's that first syllable stress. It has seven syllables. It sounds odd, but it works very well for songs, which is one of the reasons you can't use it that long for words. It has a kind of spell sound to it. And they sing. You spotted snakes with double tongue. Thorny hedgehogs be not seen. Newts and blind worms do no wrong. Come not near our fairy queen. Philomel with melody. Sing in our sweet lullaby. La 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 lullaby. La 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 lullaby. 
Never harm, nor spell, nor charm, come our lovely lady nigh. So good night with lullaby. Weaving spiders come not here, hence you long-legged spinners, hence. Beetles black approach not near, worm nor snail do no offense. Philomel with melody, singing our sweet lullaby. La 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 lullaby. La 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 lullaby. Never harm nor spell nor charm. Come our lovely lady nigh. So good night with lullaby. So again, it's all about the natural world, and mostly it's about protecting her from the dangerous things in the natural world, including those spotted snakes. You get that fun double S alliteration. And they have double tongue. Why doubled? Because it's forked. It's a split tongue. They don't have two separate tongues. Protecting her from the thorny hedgehogs. Newts, who as you may know are a kind of water lizard. In this time, at least, their skin was supposed to produce a kind of toxin, so that was the dangerous part. Blindworms are another kind of poisonous reptile. They're called blindworms because they're basically blind. They're also mentioned by the witches in Macbeth, using the same meter. So they're well known for being a gross, dangerous reptile. And they're asking these animals not to harm the fairy queen. And then the chorus of this is addressed to Philomel. Who's Philomel? Well, this is another reference to Ovid's Metamorphoses, of course. In the myth, she's a woman who is raped by her brother-in-law, and then, even more horribly, he cuts out her tongue to silence her. This is another source of the Lavinia plot in Titus Andronicus. They talk about Philomel a lot in that play, because the same thing happens to her. So after all this horrible stuff happens to Philomel, or Philomela, she gets her revenge on her brother-in-law by, get this, teaming up with her sister to feed him his son for dinner. It's great, right? Obviously, he was not happy about this. And to facilitate her escape, the gods turned her into a nightingale. So now all nightingales are thought to be the embodiment of this wronged woman, Philomela. So when they say Philomel, what they're saying is the nightingale, which is this bird known for its beautiful evening song, because not a lot of birds are up at night. And remember, the fairy world is a night world. It takes place at night, so that's the bird that's singing. And they're calling on the nightingale to join in their lullaby. And they wish for no harm or spell or charm, charm like an enchantment, to come nigh our lovely lady. Nigh means near. As you'll see in a few minutes, this doesn't work at all. A spell and a charm and a harm, they all come near their lovely lady. This song doesn't work. And in the next verse, they talk about more of these awful animals that could harm her. The spiders that weave their webs, they say, hence, as in get away from here, you long-legged spinners. That's the spiders again. Beetles black, there's good alliteration there, beetles black. Approach not near, worm nor snail do no offense. Offense is harm or injury, not like she was offended by something that snail said. These are also animals that could potentially be poisonous, although they're so slow, I don't know what they could do to her. And then one more chorus. One more ineffective, ineffective chorus. And then one fairy says to the others, hence away, like let's all go from here. Now all is well. One aloof stands sentinel. Aloof isn't our modern sense of like sort of jaded and ironic. No, it means literally off to the side. So you stand just to the side of her and stand sentinel. In other words, remain as a watchman to make sure none of those things approaches. And of course, this poor fairy immediately fails. It's sort of like that scene in the movie where the guard is there and someone comes up behind them with chloroform. I think that's sort of what happens to this fairy when Oberon arrives. Because as it turns out, the biggest danger to Titania isn't forest animals. It's her estranged weirdo fairy husband. And after knocking out that fairy, he goes right up to her with that flower and squeezes it into her eyes and says what is basically a spell. What thou seest when thou dost wake, do it for thy true love take. 
And again, this is the same fairy meter as the song, because it's specifically magical. So whatever you see when you wake up, you should take it for your true love. In other words, you should think that it is your true love. And what else? Love and languish for his sake. Languish is like to pine away. And you get the alliteration of love and languish. Be it ounce or cat or bear, pard or boar with bristled hair, in thine eye that shall appear, when thou wakest, it is thy dear. So be it, whether it be an ounce, not in our sense of a measurement, but like a lynx, a wild cat, almost like a bobcat, or cat or bear, pard, which is just an old way of saying leopard, or boar with bristled hair. There's some fun alliteration of boar and bristled. In thy eye that shall appear. So this goes back to be it. You could almost reorder that to whether the thing that appears in your eye shall be an ounce or a cat or a bear or a pard or a boar. In thy eye that shall appear when thou wakest. So to restate it, he's sort of saying whatever animal it is that appears in your eye when you wake up. And notice the choice of the word eye. It's not just see. It appears in your eye because the magic comes from her eye, as love does. So whatever it is, it's going to be your dear, the thing you love most. And then he has one final wish for her. Wake when some vile thing is near. And notice there are some interesting rhyme schemes in this spell of his. The first three lines all rhyme with each other, which is pretty rare. And then the next two, and then the last three. You can even make a case that because of the way that Elizabethan English used to sound, the last five lines actually rhyme with each other. So there's a real sense of momentum in these rhymes. And then at the end of this spell, notice how the language thins out. So there aren't as many of these complicated Latinate words. It's all very blunt. The last two lines are entirely single syllables. When thou wakest, it is thy dear wake when some vile thing is near. In fact, that last line, you can make the case that it's almost entirely stressed because it's a commandment that she should wake up when something awful is there. And he's really, really hoping it's going to be an animal. He wants her to fall in love with some gross animal. That's how angry he is towards her right now. And then we have more characters arriving in the woods. And conveniently enough, again, they hit exactly where the fairy queen is sleeping. So what's the point of bringing all these people into the woods? Well, one thing is that if you start out all these plot strands separately, you have to find a sort of common stage for them all to interact on. And here, it's those woods. They become this kind of magical place where everybody fights it out. The definitive word on what Shakespeare's doing here comes from this very famous critic named Northrop Frye, who was writing in the middle of the 20th century. And he was looking for these sort of archetypal structures of Shakespeare's plays, and his comedies in particular at this moment. And he finds this pattern, which is what he refers to as the green world. So what he's saying is, in a lot of Shakespeare's comedies, the characters will start out in what is basically a normal world. They start out in an ordered place, usually a city, and they leave that city for some wild natural space, which Fry calls the green world, because it's tied into those ideas of growth and nature. And since they can't resolve their problems in their normal world, they have to go to this green world to work things out there so that they can return back to city life with these issues resolved. It's a very similar cycle to the cycles of the seasons. You have to go through winter to get back to spring. It's similar also to the cycle of day and night, which is so important in this play. You have to get through the night to get back to the day. And obviously there's a sense of transformation here. You have to go somewhere strange to be transformed so you can come back changed. There are also themes here of death and rebirth. You have to go through this sort of symbolic death to be reborn back to the world you came from. This is absolutely true in Midsummer. Maybe the most famous case is in As You Like It. It's in Two Gentlemen of Verona. It's in Winter's Tale. It's in Merry Wives of Windsor, of all things. And a lot of the comedies have that same structure, that you have to go somewhere wild to come back healed. And obviously the city isn't working out so well for Lysander and Hermia, so they escape just like they planned to into the woods. And remember, they were leaving at midnight, so now this is the middle of the night. 
They're out in the woods. Unlike she feared, he actually showed up, so that's good. And so when we see them at this point, they're already on their way to his aunt's house, but they're in trouble. And he says to her, fair love, you faint with wandering in the wood. So fair love, fair meaning beautiful, you faint. Not like faint dead away, but you're getting tired, you're growing weary because of all this wandering around in the woods. And you see that alliteration of fair and faint and also wandering in wood. And why is she getting faint and wandering? Because he says, and to speak troth, I have forgot our way. Troth is another way of saying truth. So actually, this was supposed to be a really simple plan. They were supposed to meet up in the woods and then go straight to his aunt's house. But he has no idea where they are. But he reassures her. He says, we'll rest us, Hermia, if you think it good, and tarry for the comfort of the day. So if you think it's all right, we'll rest for a little while and tarry, in other words, wait for the comfort of the day. So we'll wait until day breaks to keep walking. Notice this rhyme scheme, by the way, this ABAB. It sounds a lot like a sonnet, which are made up of these quatrains, these four lines in that same rhyme scheme. And Hermia immediately returns them to the usual rhyme scheme. Be it so, Lysander, find you out of bed, for I upon this bank will rest my head. So great idea, go find yourself a bed, because I'm going to rest right over here. But he objects a little bit. He says, one turf shall serve as pillow for us both. So one turf, the same grassy spot, will be a pillow for both of us. We're going to sleep right next to each other. One heart, one bed, two bosoms, and one troth. So he's saying they should share a turf, the same spot, but they also share a heart, a bed, a troth, which is like the faith they've sworn to each other to love, and two bosoms. No, not in that way. It means their bodies or their trunks, the thing their heart is in. So even though they're made up of two different bodies, they share all these other things. He's sweet-talking her pretty impressively here, but she is not having it. She says, nay, good Lysander, for my sake, my dear, lie further off yet. Yet here means still, as in until we're married, you should probably lie over there. It's not appropriate for us. She says, do not lie so near. Again, in Shakespeare's time, if you weren't married, even the appearance of impropriety could be terrible for your reputation, especially if you were a woman. But he's like, oh, baby, that's not what I was talking about at all. No. He says, oh, take the sense, sweet, of my innocence. Take the sense of my innocence means something like recognize my innocent intentions towards you. But you also get that fun pun of sense and innocence. Love takes the meaning in love's conference. You see that echo of take the sense and take the meaning? Love here means someone who's in love. A lover, in other words, understands the meaning in love's conference. Conference as in conversation or words between lovers. So someone who's really in love will understand what the other person's talking about. I mean that my heart unto yours is knit, so that but one heart we can make of it. Yeah, I wasn't talking about sex stuff. I mean my heart is knit to yours, linked or intertwined, so that we only have one heart together. They're so combined that the two hearts look like one heart. Two bosoms interchained with an oath, so then two bosoms and a single troth. He was explaining his list from earlier. So these two bosoms, these two trunks, are chained together with their oath that they'll love each other. So then two bosoms and a single troth. A troth, again, is that sworn faith to each other. It's all very academic. He's a clever kid in school who's trying to use that to sleep next to his girlfriend in the woods. And he has a big conclusion. Then by your side no bedroom me deny. For lying so, Hermia, I do not lie. Bedroom isn't a literal bedroom, as in where our bed is. It means room to sleep. So don't deny me room to sleep at your side. For lying so, in other words, lying by your side, I ain't lying. So there's this really corny pun on lying down and telling lies. And fortunately, Hermia is not a dummy. She calls him out on his corny puns and his fancy talking almost immediately. She says, Lysander riddles very prettily. Riddles doesn't mean tells riddles. It means puns or plays around with words. Very prettily, almost like cleverly. Like you're real good with words. And she sort of humors him for a moment. Now much beshrew my manners and my pride if Hermia meant to say Lysander lied. Beshrew means curse, like may my manners and my pride be cursed if I meant to say that you lied. And she's using his word again. He has his lying lie, and she says, oh, I didn't mean to say you lied. But, gentle friend, 
for love and courtesy. Lie further off in human modesty. Gentle means kind, but it might also be noble. For love and courtesy, in other words, in the name of love and also courtesy, good behavior. This is related to the idea of a courtier, someone who had to behave in a particular way. So in the names of love and courtesy, lie further off. She uses that phrase again. She already said it once. She's going to say it again. In human modesty. Modesty is like virtue or propriety. It's the way you're supposed to act. And why is it human? Well, it's something close to the word humane. It's what you're supposed to do as a person. Such separation, as may well be said, becomes a virtuous bachelor and a maid. So our being separated apart when we sleep becomes, in other words, is proper for, befits, a virtuous bachelor, in other words, an unmarried man, and a maid, a young unmarried woman, specifically a virgin. So this is how two people in our situation are supposed to behave. So far be distant, and good night, sweet friend. The so here is a distance. Be this far distant, exactly this far distant, basically as distant as modesty becomes us. She sort of marches him off a distance from her where it's appropriate for him to sleep. And good night, sweet friend. She uses sweet and friend a lot. These are very innocent words. There's nothing sexual about them. She's very concerned about the way she's supposed to behave, about her reputation. Not lover, but friend. And she gives him one more wish. Thy love ne'er alter till thy sweet life end. In other words, may your love never change until you die. So for your whole life. Of course, as we'll see, his love is going to change in about three minutes. And he replies, Amen! Amen to that fair prayer, say I, and then end life when I end loyalty. So she made a wish that his love never change, and he says, Amen, like it's a prayer. And I like the sound of those words, fair prayer, and then end life, and may my life end then. When is the then? When I end loyalty. So she's saying, I hope you're loyal until the day you die. And he says, not only that, but I hope I die when I'm disloyal. You get those parallel structures of end life and end loyalty. So he's lost to her. He knows. He says, here is my bed. I'm going to sleep all over here. It's going to be great. This seems like a very nice place. A proper distance from you. And then he wishes her, sleep give thee all his rest. May sleep, in other words, may the personification of sleep, almost as though there's a god of sleep, give you all the rest he can give you. But Hermia says, with half that wish, the wisher's eyes be pressed. Because he just wished her all the sleep, and she says, no, you should sleep too. With half that wish, so I'll get half the sleep, and you'll get half the sleep, may the wisher's eyes be pressed. The wisher is him, and pressed here means closed by sleep. And notice again, eyes. Eyes is the vehicle of sleep, not only of love. Sleep and love and dreaming are all very intertwined here, and they're all eye-related. And in comes Puck, in comes Robin Goodfellow. Because remember, he was out on assignment, looking for Demetrius and Helena. And you see, when he speaks, he's going to speak in that fairy meter again. Through the forest have I gone, but Athenian found I none on whose eyes I might approve this flower's force in stirring love. So I've gone all through the forest, but I haven't found any Athenians on whose eyes I might approve. What it really means is something like confirm or test out. This flower's force, the ability of this flower in stirring love, to create or cause love. And remember, back in Elizabethan times, approve and love rhymed. The vowel sounds were much more similar than they are today. So he's in a pickle here. He hasn't seen anybody. He doesn't know what to do. And he just stands there and says, Night and silence, which is a beautiful line. It's only half a line. It's very short, but it gives you this real sense of peace with all these people sleeping around. Remember, Titania's still sleeping on stage, and now Lysander and Hermia are sleeping on stage. So for this moment of peace, there is night and silence. And then suddenly he sees Lysander. He says, Who is here? Weeds of Athens he doth wear. Weeds meaning clothes. And immediately he sees these Athenian garments and he thinks to himself, This is he, my master said, despised the Athenian maid. So as soon as he sees those clothes, he assumes that this is the Athenian man he was talking about. This is a problem because this is not the Athenian man he was talking about. Maid is a young woman. Again, Oberon was talking about Helena. And Puck immediately makes the leap. He says, And here the maiden, sleeping sound on the dank and dirty ground. 
So he sees the woman and assumes it's the right one, but actually it's a totally different woman. So here she is, sleeping sound, as in soundly, and you get a cool alliteration of sleeping and sound, and also dank and dirty. Dank meaning damp or musty. You can see how the sound of the language starts to matter a lot more when the fairies talk. And he comes over and looks at her and says, Pretty soul, she durst not lie near this lack love, this kill courtesy. She durst not, she dares not to lie next to this lack love. I love that term. Someone who lacks love is a lack love. And what else is he? He's a kill courtesy, which is a way of saying someone who has no courteous manners. Though, of course, the reason he's lying here in the first place is because of courtesy. So Puck has totally screwed this up. And you see more alliteration here. The language is again getting really dense. Lack love, kill courtesy. Remember also that in this time, lie and courtesy would have rhymed. And he's pretty sure these are the right people. After all, how many Athenians could there be in this forest? Turns out at least two more. And he does the spell. He says, Churl, upon thy eyes I throw all the power this charm doth owe. Churl is a great word. It means a terrible or rude person. Usually a lower class person, like a peasant. But here it's just you terrible guy for turning down this woman. Upon thy eyes I throw all the power this charm, in other words, this enchantment or spell in the juice of this flower, doth owe. Not owe like money, but more like own or possess. And so he's spreading the juice on his eyes and says, When thou wakest, let love forbid sleep his seat on thy eyelid. I think this is one of the most overlooked lines in this play. Everyone just kind of does the spell and moves on. But specifically, what is the spell? When you wake up, love is going to forbid for sleep to have his seat, in other words, from being able to dwell on his eyelid. And what this is implying is that there isn't room for two in this town of the eye. Either love can be there or sleep can be there. And this is actually sort of a perfect metaphor when you think about it, because often when you're in love, you have trouble sleeping. And it's notable that they both work through the eye. So obviously, yes, this potion makes people fall in love with the person they see, but it also makes them unable to sleep. So by the end of their time in the woods, when everyone falls down exhausted, keep in mind that they're all sleep deprived too. So he finishes the spell and says, So awake when I am gone, for I must now to Oberon. So you're welcome to wake up when I leave. Why? Because I must now to, in other words, I should now go to Oberon. And here's where things really get interesting. This is where the real farce starts to come up. In come Demetrius and Helena. He just missed them by like one second. And it's more of the same. Remember last scene where she was chasing him and he was refusing her and threatening her? The chase is still going on. And she cries out to him, Stay, though thou kill me, sweet Demetrius. So even if you have to kill me, just stay with me. And he wheels on her and says, I charge thee, hence, and do not haunt me thus. So I charge you, I command you, hence, get away from here, and do not haunt me thus. Which means like hang around or pursue me. But also there's that ghostly sense, almost as though she's a spirit haunting him. You also get those strong H sounds, hence and haunt. And she's pretty distraught, but she also appeals to his decency. She says, oh, wilt thou darkling leave me? I love that word darkling. It just means in the dark, but it's a much prettier way to say it. Are you going to leave me here, this innocent woman out in the dark? Do not so. And he says, stay on thy peril. In other words, stay here or you'll be in danger, maybe from him. I alone will go. I'm going to go and you're going to stay here. And off he goes. And for a second, she gives up. She says, oh, I am out of breath in this fond chase. Now you'd think from our modern sense of fond that this would be like a chase of love, but actually it has a totally different meaning in Shakespeare's time. It means stupid or foolish. So she's acknowledging, she knows exactly how dumb this thing she's doing is. This chase where I'm the woman chasing the man is ridiculous and dumb and stupid and I hate it. The more my prayer, the lesser is my grace. And grace is literally like God's blessing or kindness to humans. And in this case, Demetrius is her God. So it's as though the more she prays to him, the more she asks him for something, in other words, his love, the less grace he gives her, the less kindness and love he gives back. 
Usually God gives you more grace the more you pray to him, but this is a backwards God. And this is a classic antithesis, that rhetorical structure with two opposite sides of a line. It's what they call an inverse proportion. The more I pray, the less he loves me. Happy is Hermia, wheresoever she lies, for she hath blessed and attractive eyes. This goes back to that speech she had earlier, how happy some or other some can be. Again, happy is Hermia. Not joyful, fortunate, lucky. She's lucky, wheresoever she lies, no matter where she's lying around now. Even though, of course, she's lying right next to her and doesn't know it. Why is she lucky? For she hath blessed and attractive eyes. Not just attractive as in pretty, but able to draw men, and specifically Demetrius, to her. This is again an echo of where she wished earlier that she could have Hermia's eyes, that she would teach her how to look. And there's that word again, she envies Hermia's eyes. And then she goes into a little disquisition on eyes. She says, how came her eyes so bright? In other words, how did her eyes become so bright? Not with salt tears. Salt just meaning salty. If so, my eyes are oftener washed than hers. So one explanation for her bright eyes might be that they're washed a lot by tears, almost like they're polished. But that can't be because Helena's done much more crying. Her eyes are more often washed than Hermia's are. And then Helena goes full masochist. She says, no, no, I am as ugly as a bear. For beasts that meet me run away for fear. Oh, poor lady. She's as ugly as a bear. This, of course, was one of the animals on Oberon's list of ugly animals that he was hoping that Titania would fall in love with. And what's her proof for that? That beasts that meet her, in other words, animals in the woods that meet her, run away for fear. Don't worry, lady. They do that with everyone. It's not because you're ugly. It's because you're a person. Therefore, no marvel, though Demetrius, do as a monster fly my presence thus. So if animals run away, it's no marvel. In other words, it's no surprise that Demetrius does as a monster, as he would escape from a monster, fly my presence, run away from me, thus, in this way. So if animals are afraid of her, it's no wonder Demetrius runs away too. I'm a monster. And then she gets deeper into that hole. She says, what wicked and dissembling glass of mine made me compare with Hermia's spherine. A dissembling glass is a lying mirror. So what was this awful lying mirror of mine that made me think I could compare, in other words, compete or be a rival to Hermia's spherine? Ein again is that archaic way of saying eyes. And spheri means heavenly or starry, like those crystal spheres that all the heavenly bodies were in. So it's another comparison of eyes to stars. So she is really down on herself. She thinks she is hideous looking and she'll never be as pretty to Demetrius as Hermia is. But all of a sudden she sees something. But who is here? Lysander on the ground, dead or asleep. Which is a great line because death and sleep look the same. And she examines him and says, I see no blood, no wound. Remember wound and ground would have rhymed back in the day. And she tries to wake him up. She says, Lysander, if you live, good sir, awake. And look back on those last few lines and see how choppy they are. They're all split up lines. But who is here? Lysander, on the ground, dead or asleep. I see no blood, no wound. Lysander, if you live, good sir, awake. So she's really worked up. So after those long, languid, self-pitying lines earlier, suddenly the action gets ramped up just in the language alone. And he wakes up and immediately he's talking in poetry. He says, and run through fire I will for thy sweet sake. Notice he completes her rhyme. It's a couplet. He's literally coupling himself to her. And as soon as he sees her, that love potion starts to work immediately. And he swears that he's going to follow her through fire if he has to. And if you didn't see it coming before, this is where the complication is going to arise. We had Puck's mistaken spell casting, and now we have someone in love with the wrong person. And this is classic farce complication. Just so you're keeping track, here's currently who loves who. Hermia loves Lysander. Lysander loves Helena. Helena loves Demetrius. Demetrius loves Hermia. So this is a classic love square. It's great comedic material. It's also a total disaster for these characters. It's just complications abound because everyone loves someone else who does not love them back. So the spell is on Lysander, and now he starts swearing even more. He says, transparent Helena. Ooh, that's a beautiful adjective. 
Why is she transparent? Nature shows art that through thy bosom makes me see thy heart. Nature shows art. Art can mean ingenuity or even magic. Nature's done something magical to you that through thy bosom, in other words, through your chest, I can see your heart. So his love for her has immediately made her see through. And then he remembers Demetrius. Where is Demetrius? Oh, how fit a word is that vile name to perish on my sword. It's an odd construction that his name is a fit word to die on Lysander's sword. So maybe because of the way Demetrius has treated her, Lysander wants to go kill her now that he's in love with her. And as you might imagine, Helena is freaked out. She says, do not say so. Lysander, say not so. Like, no, this is not happening. Also, that's an incredibly cool sounding line. Do not say so. Lysander, say not so. Because Lysander is marching off to hurt Demetrius. And remember, she still loves Demetrius. She says, what though he love your Hermia? So, so what if he loves Hermia? Lord, what though? So what? Yet Hermia still loves you. Then be content. You don't have to worry about him because Hermia loves you. And notice how freaked out she is. She's speaking in these half lines. And she says, be content, as in do not go kill Demetrius. But Lysander takes that cue word content in another way. He says, content with Hermia? No, I do repent the tedious minutes I with her have spent. So not only isn't he content with her, he says he repents. In other words, he feels bad about her, he swears off. It's literally a religious thing. Like he's repenting the sin of having loved Hermia. He repents the tedious minutes he has spent with her. All that awful time I was with her, I swear that all off. And notice this triple rhyme of content, repent, and spent. It really amps up the emotion of the scene. And if Helena hasn't quite gotten it yet, she gets it on his next line where he says, not Hermia, but Helena I love. Their names do sound a lot alike, don't they? It's kind of confusing at times. Really important to cast Helena's and Hermia's who don't look anything alike. And why does he love Helena? Who will not change a raven for a dove? Change here means exchange or trade. Who wouldn't trade a raven in for a dove? So ravens are the bird of war, they're scavengers, and doves are the bird of peace. Ravens are black, and doves are white. And even though it brings up a lot of messed up racial stuff, black was seen as ugly in Shakespeare's time, and white was seen as beautiful. And then he gets to more of that sweet talking he was using on Hermia before. He says, The will of man is by his reason swayed. And reason says, You are the worthier maid. So the will of man, the desire, what he wants, and really also a hint at sexual desire, it's swayed by his reason. In other words, it's controlled by his reason. I don't know if I'd say that, but okay. And using that reason, you are the worthier maid. You're the more deserving or more excellent woman. Anyone could see that. It's just reason. Things growing are not ripe until their season. Season being basically the time when they're ripe. Like that moment in summer when a fruit becomes ripe. So they're not ready until exactly the right time. And by the same token, he says, so I, being young, till now ripe not to reason. So I've been growing. I'm still young. Until now, I wasn't ripe. I wasn't ready or mature to reason. I couldn't see reason because I was too young and unripe. There's also that fun alliteration with ripe and reason. So he's rationalizing it to himself and to her why he never loved her before. And touching now the point of human skill, reason becomes the marshal to my will and leads me to your eyes where I o'erlook love's stories written in love's richest book. And touching now, in other words, now that I've reached the point of human skill, point here means like the highest point of human skill, skill not just being ability, but like discernment or discriminating taste. So now that I've matured and become what I'm going to be, reason becomes the marshal to my will. Marshal being the thing that steers or guides. So my will, the will of man he was talking about at the beginning of his speech, is now marshaled by his reason. And that marshal leads him to your eyes. There's those eyes again, where I overlook. Overlook not in our sense of miss, but more like look over or read or examine. Love's stories written in love's richest book. Love's most noble or cultivated or beautiful book. It's as though he's learned to read, and when he does, she is the book that he reads. And Helena is totally flabbergasted, and immediately she assumes the worst. She says, Wherefore was I to this keen mockery born? Wherefore, why was I born to this keen mockery? Keen meaning sharp, like a sword. 
So she thinks he's making fun of her because she heard how much he loved Hermia. And now all of a sudden it's her? When at your hands did I deserve this scorn? At your hands just means from you. When did I deserve this scorn, this taunting or contempt from you? What have I done to deserve that? It's not enough. It's not enough, young man, that I did never, no, nor never can, deserve a sweet look from Demetrius' eye. But you must flout my insufficiency? The language here is really amazing. Is it not enough? And then she repeats it. Is it not enough? And then calls him a young man, which is awesome. Even though if he's younger than her, it's by like a month. So isn't it enough that I never did and I never can deserve a sweet look from Demetrius' eye? You see those four N sounds in a row? Never, no, nor never? And look, she doesn't say get a sweet look from Demetrius's eye. She says deserve a sweet look. So she's internalized it. She doesn't think it's Demetrius's fault anymore. She thinks she doesn't deserve a good look from his eye. So isn't it bad enough that he doesn't love me? But you must flout my insufficiency. Flout means insult or make fun of my insufficiency, as in not ever being enough. So she thinks that he's teasing her by pretending to love her as a way to mock the fact that Demetrius doesn't love her. And that makes things even worse. She says, good troth, you do me wrong. Good sooth, you do in such disdainful manner me to woo. So you see those phrases, good troth, good sooth? Both troth and sooth mean something pretty similar to truth, as in I swear by God's truth, basically. You do me wrong. You do. You hear those repetitions there. There's lots of repetition and sound all over this to really get a sense of how much this is hurting her. And how is he doing her wrong? In such disdainful manner, me to woo. Disdainful meaning disdaining, as in scornful, mocking, to woo me, to court me this way. And she's had enough. She says, but fare you well. Goodbye. Perforce, I must confess, I thought you lord of more true gentleness. Perforce literally means by force, but here it means necessarily, like I have no choice, but I have to confess to you, I thought you lord. In other words, I thought you the master or the owner of more true gentleness. Gentleness not like calm, but like nobility or courtesy. Like, I thought you were nicer than this. And she has one last lament. Oh, that a lady of one man refused should of another therefore be abused. The ofs here mean by. So, oh, it's awful that a lady who was refused by one man should be abused. In other words, mistreated or dishonored by another man. And off she stomps. She is not having it anymore. But Lysander is still under that spell. And he says, she sees not Hermia. In other words, she never saw that Hermia was lying asleep right on the other side of this bank. And he says, Hermia, sleep thou there, and never mayst thou come Lysander near. Ooh, this is cruel. So he says, you stay sleeping there, Hermia. Never come near me. Notice also the use of pronouns here. Lysander called Helena you, and he calls Hermia here thou. You is that formal, it's a sign of respect, whereas thou is informal, and it's a sign of real disrespect. So you can tell just from the way he uses his pronouns how his attitude towards Helena and Hermia have changed. And he tries to explain to himself why he's suddenly out of love with Hermia. He says, For as a surfeit of the sweetest things the deepest loathing to the stomach brings, or as the heresies that men do leave are hated most of those they did deceive, so thou, my surfeit and my heresy, of all be hated but the most of me. Oh, this is incredibly cruel language. And he has these metaphors for as a surfeit, in other words, as an excess of the sweetest things, like eating too much candy, basically, the deepest loathing to the stomach brings. So if you eat all the candy, you get a stomach ache and you never want to eat that again. See also those hard S sounds of surfeit and sweetest? Or, and here's another metaphor, as the heresies that men do leave. Heresy comes from the Greek word for choice, and it's usually used in a religious context. It means any choice that's contrary to the mainstream, usually if you believe something other than your church believes. So just like those heresies that men do leave, in other words, renounce or leave behind, are hated most of those they did deceive, these heresies are hated most by exactly the people that were once deceived by them. So if you used to believe something wrong, you're the one who's going to hate it the most in the future, once you've stopped believing it. 
So just like that surfeit and like the heresies, so thou, in the same way you, my surfeit and my heresy, which is a beautiful line, he's calling Hermia his surfeit and his heresy, things he did and regrets in the past, of all be hated, may you be hated by everyone, but the most of me, but I hope I hate you most of all. Oh, it's so cruel. And then he sets off on his mission. He says, and all my powers address your love and might to honor Helen and to be her knight. He's talking directly to his powers, his abilities as a person. He wants them to address, in other words, turn or direct or bend his love and might to honor Helen, Helena, and to be her knight. In other words, someone who dedicates himself to serving her, who would do anything for her, who would fight for her. And just like he hinted earlier, would fight Demetrius for her honor. So he rushes off after her. Oh good, more love chasing. And the timing of all these waking ups and leavings is just perfect because as soon as he leaves, Hermia wakes up. And notably, she wakes up in the middle of a dream. She says, help me, Lysander, help me. Do thy best to pluck this crawling serpent from my breast. So she's half asleep when she calls out to him. Do thy best to pluck this crawling serpent from my breast. So she's dreaming that there's a snake crawling across her chest in the middle of the night. And she says, I me for pity. I me is sort of like, oh my, it's an expression of shock or fear. And for pity is another expression that means something like, I'm in a pitiable state, like I'm in trouble. And finally she's awake now and she says, what a dream was here. This is actually one of the few real dreams in the play. Everyone else is in this sort of metaphorical dream of magic, but she has a literal dream about this snake. And she turns to him and says, Lysander, look how I do quake with fear. Quake means shake. Maybe she holds up her hand and shows it to him. And then she tells him what the dream is. Methought a serpent ate my heart away, and you sat smiling at his cruel prey. So methought it seemed to me as if a serpent ate my heart away. So not only was this snake crawling on her chest, it was actually inside eating her heart. It's a pretty good metaphor for losing your love, that a snake ate your heart. But then the dream gets even worse. You, Lysander, sat smiling at his cruel prey. Prey here means attack or preying upon me, not like a mouse. So she dreamed she lost her love and Lysander was laughing at it. So she's talking to him, but then suddenly he's not there. She thought he was here all along. He's gone. She says, Lysander? And then she realizes, what? Removed? Removed as in moved away or departed, not physically removed by someone. Lysander? Lord? And Lord is in some ways related to husband. She's hoping this is going to be her husband. And she starts realizing more and more. What, out of hearing? In other words, he's at a distance where he can't hear her anymore. Gone? No sound? No word? Alack, where are you? Alack is another expression of despair, sort of like alas. Where are you? It's starting to really sink in that he's gone. He didn't say anything to her before he left. She tries again. Speak and if you hear. And if is just another way to say if. Like, speak back to me if you can hear me. And she gets more desperate. Speak of all loves. Speak to me, in other words, in the name of all true loves. She's swearing by their love. I swoon almost with fear. Swoon almost means I almost faint with fear. That's how scared she is. So you can see these last four lines are really choppy sounding as she starts to freak out more and more. Lysander, what, removed? Lysander, Lord? What, out of hearing? Gone? No sound? No word? Alack, where are you? Speak in if you hear. Speak of all loves. I swoon almost with fear. So her anxiety starts creeping into the actual structure of the language. And she waits for a second, and there's no answer. She says, No? Then I well perceive you are not nigh. I well perceive, I clearly understand, that you are not nigh. You're not near me. So it hasn't even entered into her mind that he might leave. At this point, she's worried about him. Maybe something's captured him. And she decides she's going to go after him, which is very dangerous for a young, innocent woman to do in the middle of the woods. She says, Either death or you I'll find immediately. So she says, To hell with the danger. She's going to go off and find him. And if she doesn't find him, she's going to be killed. She's going to find death. That's a dark way to end that scene, right? And now she goes off. So in order, we've just had Demetrius run away from Helena. 
Helena run away from Lysander, Lysander run away from Hermia, and Hermia run away after Lysander. So it's as though we're setting up this awful train of people running after each other. All for the sake of love. Love's grand, ain't it? And so as we move into Act 3, the machinery of the plot is really starting to roll along. All the lovers are caught up in it, but we're still missing a group to be fully integrated into it, and that's the mechanicals, the guys who are putting on the play. And as if on cue, they show up. Remember how they were going to rehearse in the woods in the night so no one would bug them? Well, here they are. And you can really ask yourself, is the action of the previous scene continuous into this one? That is, as soon as the lovers run out, do these guys run in after them? Or is there some sort of time lapse? Because the one constant is that Titania is still asleep on stage. It's one issue with this show. You have to find a way to stow a sleeping fairy queen on stage for about half an hour. But it's important she stay on stage, and we'll see in this scene why. So all six of these guys come rolling in, and even though Quince is the real leader, Bottom becomes the de facto leader, and he's the first one to speak. He says, are we all met? In other words, is everybody here? Have we all arrived and met up? And Quince replies, Pat, Pat, which is not someone's first name. It just means exactly on time or timely, like everyone's here right on time. And he goes on. He says, and here's a Marvel's convenient place for our rehearsal. Marvel's is short for marvelously or extremely, and convenient isn't necessarily in our modern sense. It's more like suitable or fitting. And you'll notice also that that actually comes from the same word as convene, which is what they're doing here, meeting up. So they found the perfect place to rehearse, and he says, This green plot shall be our stage. This Hawthorne break our tiring house. And we will do it in action as we will do it before the Duke. So this green plot, not like the plot of a play, but like a piece of earth, shall be our stage. It's just a big flat open space, like a stage. This hawthorn break. Hawthorn is a plant that Helena mentions early on. It's a bush or a tree of spring. And break is another word for a hedge or a thicket. And he says it'll be our tiring house. This is short for a tiring house, like putting on clothes, almost like a dressing room. It could also generally refer to backstage. In an Elizabethan theater, the stage juts out into the audience. And there are two doors and a space in between. And then behind it is almost like the face of a house in some ways. It'll often have some sort of higher up space, like a balcony. And the tiring house either refers to that or it's within it. Basically, it's where they make their entrances and exits from. And he says, we will do it in action as we will do it before the Duke. So this is essentially like the dress rehearsal. We're going to play out this play like we're going to do it in front of the Duke. Sounds like a plan, ready to go forward. Except Bottom has one question. He says, Peter Quince. And Quince says, what sayst thou, Bully Bottom? Quince might be a little sick of him by now. Bully here just means like a fine guy. And there's that convenient alliteration with his name. Though, of course, he's also a bully in the other sense. And Bottom, like a lot of annoying actors in rehearsal, just has a few points he wants to bring up. He says, There are things in this comedy of Pyramus and Thisbe that will never please. In other words, please an audience. First, Pyramus must draw a sword to kill himself, which the ladies cannot abide. Abide means endure or put up with. So they're going to be playing in front of these fine ladies, and he's worried that all these weapons and self-killing stuff is going to freak them out. And he says to Quince, How answer you that? Like, what's your answer for that? And then the other guys hear that and start to freak out. Snout says... Byer Lakin, a parlous fear. Byer Lakin is sort of a soft oath. It's like a variant on, I swear by Our Lady. Maybe the Elizabethan equivalent of, oh crap. A parlous fear. Parlous means dangerous or hazardous. Sort of close to perilous. But there's a little bit of a lower class sense of it. Anyway, his fears are starting to spread to the other guys. And then Starling has a solution. He says, I believe we must leave the killing out when all is done. Never mind, of course, that the suicide part is the story. That's Pyramus and Thisbe. It's like doing a production of Romeo and Juliet where she wakes up in time. Although, they have done that. Not a great play. It's as though Shakespeare gets to do a little cross-generational critique of the people who are going to try and alter his play in the future. But Bottom at least realizes how ridiculous that is, and he says, Not a whit. 
A wit is like just a little bit. Like we don't even have to do that a little. Don't worry. He says, I have a device to make all well. A device like a plan or a plot. It's literally a thing he has devised. And what is it designed to do? He says to make all well. In other words, to make everything right. He has a way to handle all this swords and killing stuff without freaking out the ladies. Interesting. So he says, write me a prologue and let the prologue seem to say we will do no harm with our swords and that Pyramus is not killed indeed. Write me is another way of saying write, not write just for bottom, but like, why don't you write a prologue? Remember, this is a speech or the person who gives the speech at the beginning of the play that kind of lays out the plot in advance. So he wants one of those. And he says, let the prologue seem to say that we will do no harm with our swords and that Pyramus is not killed indeed. It's basically a disclaimer saying plays aren't real. We're not actually killing ourselves. These aren't real swords. Of course, the people watching will know this, but he just wants to be really sure. And he goes on, and for the more better assurance, tell them that I, Pyramus, am not Pyramus, but Bottom the Weaver. For the more better assurance means something like for an even better certainty or confidence, just so they really get it. Tell them that he's not actually Pyramus. He's Bottom the Weaver. Again, a total disclaimer. And he says, this will put them out of fear. You know, they won't be afraid when they hear this. And Quint says, well, we will have such a prologue and it shall be written in eight and six. What is this eight and six business? It's a meter. And in particular, it's a ballad meter where one line has eight syllables and the next line has six syllables, hence eight and six. This is also very popular for hymns. If you know Amazing Grace, for example, the most popular hymn ever written, that's an eight and six. Da-da, 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 da-da. So he's just plotting out what the prologue is going to be like already. And Bottom's like, no, 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 make it two more. Let it be written in eight and eight. Now, mind you, there is no meter called eight and eight. It's just called tetrameter. But Bottom is a guy who always wants to have the last word. So what the hey, throw on two more syllables. But then Snout suddenly realizes another problem. It's as though Bottom has set off a cascade of worries within the company. Snout says, will not the ladies be afeard of the lion? Aren't the ladies going to be afeard? In other words, afraid of that. And Starveling, who's a total yes man, says, I fear it, I promise you. In other words, I'm personally afraid of it. This may be another one of those plays on the stereotype of tailors, which is that they're a little skinny and effeminate, hence Starveling. And then Bottom picks up on this because, again, he has to speak. He says, Masters, you ought to consider with yourself to bring in, God shield us, a lion among ladies is a most dreadful thing. So you should consider with yourself, in other words, to yourselves, to bring in a lion. And then he has that little God shield us, as in may God protect us, presumably from punishment. So bringing in a lion among ladies, and you get that cool alliteration of lion and ladies, is a most dreadful thing. It's a thing we should be afraid of. Why? For there is not a more fearful wild fowl than your lion living, and we ought to look to it. That term wild fowl is kind of amazing. I mean, he means wild animal, but it sounds like a particularly scary breed of duck. So it's the scariest animal alive. And there's another one of those alliterations with L's again. It's lion and living, and even a little bit with look later on. And what does that mean, look to it? Not literally look with our eyes, but we should be careful. We should be aware of this. And of course, because everyone's a play right now, Snout says, therefore, another prologue must tell he is not a lion. This play is going to be more prologue than play. But Bottom again has to say that everything is his own idea. He says, nay, you must name his name, and half his face must be seen through the lion's neck, and he must speak through, saying thus, or to the same defect, ladies, or fair ladies, I would wish you, or I would request you, or I would entreat you not to fear, not to tremble. So Snout has suggested another prologue, and Bottom has said no, and then immediately gone on to basically write the prologue for him. So you should name his name, you should say he snug the joiner. And also half his face must be seen through the lion's neck. Sort of like one of those mascots where you have a little see-through patch. So in this case, there's like a little hole in the lion's neck that he can see through. So they know it isn't really a lion. And he himself must speak through, through the neck, saying thus, 
or to the same defect. Of course, he means effect. He's always mixing up words. Shakespeare, by the way, loves this particular word switch in his idiot characters. You'll see it a few other places. So this guy should say something to this effect. Ladies, and then he edits himself, or fair ladies. Fair just meaning beautiful. He's really laying on the words here. I would wish you, but then wish isn't quite right. And he says, I would request you. And then request isn't right either. He said, I would entreat you. That's the fancy word he's looking for. It means to beg or ask. So I'm asking you not to tremble or to fear. My life for yours, which is a pretty common expression. It's an idiom meaning something like, I promise you. Literally, what it means is, I'd bet my life against your life. That's how sure I am that this is going to be fine. If you think I come hither as a lion, it were pity of my life. So if you think I'm coming to here as a lion, it were pity of my life. It was basically the worst thing that could happen to my life. I wouldn't want you to think that. No, I am no such thing. I am a man, as other men are. Again, there's that ridiculous disclaimer. They know it's not a lion. The costume isn't that good. And he goes on with the plan and says, And there indeed let him name his name and tell them plainly he has snug the joiner. And Quince is either exhausted by this all, or he's been writing it all down, and he says, well, it shall be so. And then he starts to think of his own problems. This is inspiring him. He says, but there is two hard things. That is, to bring the moonlight into a chamber, for you know Pyramus and Thisbe meet by moonlight. Oh, that is a problem. We have to bring the moonlight into a chamber, in other words, into the main indoor room of the castle or the palace, because they meet by moonlight, the lovers, Pyramus and Thisbe. And they all think about this for a while, and Snout says, doth the moon shine the night we play our play? That's an important question. I like that phrase, play our play. Play just means to act it out. And maybe no one thought of this before. And Bottom calls out, a calendar! A calendar! Look in the almanac! Because you may have seen it on your own calendar in the modern day. A listing of the phases of the moon according to the day. And he keeps calling out. He says, find out moonshine! Find out moonshine! Find out as in discover when it is. And Quince, of course, just has an almanac lying around. And he takes out the book and says, yes, it doth shine that night. Ooh, lucky for them. And Bottom's excited. He says, why then, may you leave a casement of the great chamber window where we play open and the moon may shine in at the casement. Remember, this is going to happen at night. A casement is any hinged part of a big window. So it's the part that can open, basically. And the great chamber window is just the window in that big main room of the palace. So that's where they're going to play. That's where they're acting out or performing their play. They should leave that window open and the moon may shine in at the casement. Easy enough, they'll use the real moon. And Quince thinks about it. He says, I or else... One must come in with a bush of thorns and a lantern and say he comes to disfigure or to present the person of moonshine. That is another more complicated solution. So one, in other words, someone must come in with a bush of thorns. What's this thorn bush deal? Well, the man in the moon was supposed to have a thorn bush or at least a branch and a dog with him at all times. There was this cool tradition of the time that he was actually Cain. You know, the guy who did the first murder of his brother, whose curse was to wander around the world. And they looked at the moon, which after all wanders around the world, and said, oh, maybe the man in the moon, that face you can see in the moon, is Cain, and he's wandering. And he was depicted with this bush and this dog. And he'll have a lantern, you know, because the moon gives out light. And he'll say that he comes to disfigure. Again, that is totally the wrong word. What he means to say is figure, which means represent. Or to present, which means to play or portray as an actor, the person of moonshine, like the personification of moonshine. Okay, ridiculous problem solved ridiculously. He goes on to the next one. Then there is another thing. We must have a wall in the great chamber. For Pyramus and Thisbe, says the story, did talk through the chink of a wall. So Pyramus and Thisbe in this story are neighbors, and they talk through a little hole in the wall. And this is terrible news. Snout says, you can never bring in a wall. And he's pretty defeated, so he turns to Bottom and says, what say you, Bottom? Like, what's your opinion about this? This is the guy they all trust, for reasons unknown. And Bottom thinks, and he comes up with a solution. He says, some man or other must present wall. It's the same solution as the moon, basically. They need someone to present, in other words, play or depict the wall. And how are you going to do this? Well, Bottom thinks, and he says, 
and let him have some plaster or some loam or some rough casts about him to signify wall or let him hold his fingers thus and through that cranny shall pyramus and thisbe whisper so he should have some plaster or some loam loam is a soil that's made of silt and sand and you use it for filling in walls or sometimes you can mix it with straw and actually build walls out of it or some rough cast about him rough cast is like a slurry that you use to plaster over walls once they're built and it's usually made of lime which you mix with sand or small pebbles it's kind of the stucco of the day so Bottom is suggesting that he have one of those building materials about him to signify a wall. In other words, to indicate or demonstrate that he is a wall. Because he'll have kind of wall materials on him. Or, he says, let him hold his fingers thus. Thus meaning exactly this way I'm showing you right now. And through that cranny shall Pyramus and Thisbe whisper. So he's going to make the hole in the wall with his fingers. Great genius, ridiculous solution. And Quint says, if that may be, then all is well. In other words, if that may be done, if that may come to pass, then everything is fine. As long as that's taken care of, we're great. And he launches into the rehearsal. He says, come, sit down every mother's son and rehearse your parts. They use that phrase, every mother's son, a lot. It just means everybody, but it's a more colorful, lower class expression version of it. I'm always very confused by him saying sit down, as though they're supposed to sit on the ground. It may mean something more like get settled. But it's sort of funny, given that they're not going to sit down now to rehearse their parts. And he says to Bottom, Pyramus, you begin. When you have spoken your speech, enter into that break, and so everyone according to his cue. So after you've done your speech, you should go into that break. Remember that hedge or thicket, the hawthorn he mentioned earlier? But that's going to be there offstage or behind the scenes. And so everyone, and so everyone should behave according to his cue. Remember that thing about the cue scripts, where you receive the script with just the last few words of the previous speech to cue you? So whenever you hear your cue word, that's when you enter or exit. One more thing about this hawthorn break, by the way. In certain of those old Gaelic myths, there is a tradition of the hawthorn marking the entrance to the fairy world, almost like a portal between the worlds. And what you're about to see is that these worlds are going to start to blend over into each other, and there's going to be some crossing over. So it's very fitting that they happen into that hawthorn break, almost like they've stepped into a wormhole. And almost exactly on cue, in comes Puck. And he sees them, presumably he's invisible at this point, and he says, What hempen homespuns have we swaggering here so near the cradle of the fairy queen? So after all this very lower class prose, Puck comes in speaking verse, and very dense verse too, hempen homespuns. You can hear the alliteration of hempen and homespuns, but what does that mean? Hempen is literally making clothes that are spun from hemp. The same stuff that rope is made of. These are kind of rustic peasant clothes, borderline rags. And homespuns are literally people who spin their own clothes at home. So these are homemade clothes they're wearing. And what does he say they're doing? They're swaggering here. I love that verb. Almost like they're blustering, but it's probably a reference to their style of acting. So what are they doing swaggering so near the cradle of the fairy queen? She's not a giant baby. It's cradle in the sense of resting place or bed. So more humans have happened upon exactly the spot where she was lying. And he watches more and realizes what they're doing. He says, what? A play toward? Toward not in our modern sense. It used to mean impending or about to happen. So a play is about to happen. Good, he says, I'll be an auditor. An actor too, perhaps, if I see cause. Auditor is related to that word audience. Someone who hears a play, which is one of the ways they used to talk about it because they're such language-based plays. He's going to be the audience. But he says, an actor too, perhaps, if I see cause. In other words, if I see a reason to act. And it's cool that he chooses those two A words, auditor and actor, as the two roles you can be in the theater. So he takes his place to watch, and Quint says, speak, Pyramus, Thisbe, stand forth. So he tells Bottom to start speaking, and he tells Flute to stand forth. In other words, come forward, because he's in the scene too, as Thisbe. And Bottom starts acting, and boy does he act. He says, Thisbe, the flowers of odious savors sweet, 
And then Quince interrupts him and says, odors, odors. So of course, as soon as he speaks, he screws up the lines. So the flowers of odious savor sweet. Some people will say that instead of of, it should be have. I don't know if I buy that. I think either works. Odious, of course, is the wrong word. Quince corrects him to odors, but the quarto, that original publication of it, has odorous, which makes much more sense. Because instead of saying odious, he should say odorous, like sweet smelling. And savors are smells. And even before we see the final production of this play, we know what style it's in, which is this very inflated, over-the-top, old-timey style. He also uses alliteration. He says, savors sweet. So Bottom immediately takes the correction and goes on, odors, savors sweet. So hath thy breath, my dearest Thisbe dear. So your breath also smells good. A little ridiculous, but okay. And then Pyramus says, but hark, a voice. As in, but what's that I hear? Stay thou but here a while, and by and by I will to thee appear. Stay thou but here a while. Stay literally means wait. Wait but here. Just wait here for a little while. And by and by, in other words, soon, I will to thee appear. I'll come back. And Bottom finishes all of his acting, and he exits to go off to that hawthorn bush. And Puck is watching and says, a stranger pyramus than air played here. He's doing a little bit of a mystery science theater commentary on the play. There's going to be a longer version of this by all the other characters when the actual play is performed later, as you'll see. But he's saying, essentially, this is the strangest version of Pyramus that's ever been played. And Puck decides, actually, he isn't just going to be an audience member. He is going to be an actor. He knows exactly what he's going to do. And he follows Bottom into the hawthorn bush. And then poor Flute is left to follow that. And he's just sort of standing on stage and everyone's looking at him. And Flute says, must I speak now? And Quint says, I marry must you, for you must understand. He goes but to see a noise that he heard and is to come again. Quince is presumably a little frustrated at this. Yeah, of course it's your line. Your line comes next. He says, I, yeah, marry. I swear by Mary. It's a little bit of a soft oath. Must you, in other words, you must. Why? For you must understand that he goes but to see a noise. Another great oxymoron. How can you see a noise? And is to come again. In other words, he's going to come back and return. And that's his cue. So he starts his lines. He says, Most radiant pyramus, most lily white of hue, of color like the red rose on triumphant briar, most brisky juvenile, and eke most lovely Jew, as true as truest horse that yet would never tire. And this is a weird meter. It's 12 syllables. The closest thing to it is this meter called Alexandrine, where every line is basically two six syllable units. And it was actually sort of common in much earlier English plays. So one possibility is that this play within a play is a parody of the earlier style of terrible plays that Shakespeare saw when he was a kid. And the verse he speaks is also way overcooked. It's incredibly full of ridiculous images. So he says, most radiant pyramus, most lily white of hue, hue meaning color. So he says, white as a lily of color like the red rose on triumphant briar. Well, that's confusing because he just said that pyramus was lily white. And now he's saying that he's the color of the red rose on triumphant, in other words, glorious briar, which is where roses grow. But the poetry immediately contradicts itself. Also, he's using this flower imagery to describe a young man, which is a little uncommon. Most brisky juvenile. These are very silly words. Brisky is that same word as brisk. It means lively or sort of sprightly. And juvenile like juvenile, young man. And eek most lovely Jew. Yeah, Shakespeare said some weird things about Jews, but I don't think this is one of them. I think it's just a really desperate rhyme. Eek means also, but even by 1594, when this was probably written, that was a very archaic word. And all it does is end up sounding ridiculous, like the sound you make when a mouse appears. And he calls him as true as truest horse. True meaning loyal or reliable, but it's weird to compare your boyfriend to a horse. That yet would never tire. Yet meaning still. Like no matter how much you rode, it would never get tired. There's something both sexual and ridiculous in that line. So that's his first couplet. But then he keeps going. He says, I'll meet thee, Pyramus, at Ninny's tomb. 
who is he talking to? Pyramus is not on stage yet. It also ends with kind of a great joke. He says, Ninny's tomb. And Ninny, of course, being a foolish idiot. But Quince immediately corrects him and says, Ninus's tomb, man. Ninus was the founder of Nineveh, which is this ancient Assyrian city. And remember, this story is supposed to take place in ancient Babylon, so, you know, close enough. But the nice thing about Ninus is you get to confuse it with Ninny. But it doesn't even matter that he got it wrong, because it's too early. Quince says, why, you must not speak that yet, that you answer to Pyramus. In other words, once Pyramus re-enters, he has a line, and then Flute's supposed to respond to that. And Quince is pretty frustrated by this. He says, you speak all your part at once, cues and all. Part isn't just your part of Thisbe, it literally refers to the part scroll that someone's part was written on. So basically, Thisbe forgot to memorize his cues. All he memorized was the words. So he's reading all of his lines as one big speech. But Quince also notices that this is in part Bottom's fault, and he says, Pyramus, enter! Your cue is passed. In other words, your cue passed by. It is never tire. Remember that part about the horse? That's when Pyramus was supposed to re-enter. And Flute says, oh, he figures out what he did and he goes on. As true as truest horse that yet would never tire. So he goes back and gives Bottom his cue again. And in comes Bottom, but something crazy has happened to him. He has the head of a donkey. This is one of those times where it's annoying that Shakespeare is as famous as he is. Because it's an incredible sight gag. It's kind of the last thing you expect. Now, admittedly, your brain is kind of set up because you've seen Puck follow Bottom into that bush. And so the whole time, as all the ridiculousness with the queuing is going on, you're thinking to yourself, well, what's going to happen when he re-enters? What trick is he going to pull? And this is a great trick. Because Bottom, of course, doesn't know this has happened. He comes on and he says his line. He says, if I were fair, Thisbe, I were only thine. Like, I may be beautiful, but I belong only to you. But of course, none of them can listen to his line because they see him. And the only one who can speak is Quince, who says, Oh, monstrous. Oh, strange. We are haunted. Pray, masters. Fly, masters. Help. So this pray could mean a few things. One, it could mean literally pray to God because they're haunted by this monster. And why is it a monster? Well, in part because it is half man, half animal. It's like an especially ridiculous version of the Minotaur. The other thing pray could mean is I ask you. And what does he ask them to do? Fly, which means to flee or run away. So either he's asking them to run away, or he's telling them to pray, and then run away. And they all run, but there's room for some really nice Keystone Cop-style physical comedy here, too. Because Puck follows them out, and he says, I'll follow you. I'll lead you about around, through bog, through bush, through brake, through briar. So what is he going to do to them? So what is he going to do to them after he follows them? He says he's going to lead them about around, which could be another way to say roundabout. But around can also refer to a circle dance, almost like he's leading them on a ridiculous dance as they bumble all around. Through bog, through bush, through brake, through briar. Brake, remember, is a bush or a thicket, and briar is prickly thorn bushes, like what a rose would grow on. Now that's some champion alliteration. That's four B words in a row. It sounds a lot like what that fairy said at the beginning of the play, when it was listing all the places it had gone for Titania. Sometime a horse I'll be, sometime a hound, a hog, a headless bear, sometime a fire, and neigh, and bark, and grunt, and roar, and burn, like horse, hound, hog, bear, fire, at every turn. This is some awesome writing, by the way. So he says, sometime, in other words, sometimes, I'm going to be a horse. Like, he'll either be in the shape of a horse to them, or more likely, he'll remain invisible and just do all these noises. Because remember when we first met him, they talked about misleading night wanderers, and that his favorite thing to do was to throw his voice and pretend to be something else to throw people off the track? Well, now he's going to get to actually do that. So he's going to pretend to be a horse, he's going to pretend to be a hound, a dog, he's going to pretend to be a hog, a pig, a headless bear, this is my favorite. Why a headless bear? What sound does a headless bear make? To be honest, Shakespeare needed two syllables at this point, and he was like, I don't know, headless? It is a fantastically weird choice, and I think we should respect it as such. Sometime a fire. So he set up all the things he's going to be, and then we get to hear the sounds they'll make. 
and neigh like a horse and bark like a hound and grunt like a hog and roar apparently that's the sound of a headless bear sort of like a regular headed bear and burn like a fire like horse hound hog bear fire at every turn i love the sounds of this language too especially how many monosyllables there are in part because he's describing literal sounds so the words sound like the sounds neigh bark grunt roar burn they're hard monosyllables same thing with that list of animal names horse hound hog bear fire and yes i know fire isn't an animal but close enough these are really forceful single syllables that let him basically bark at them and he chases all these guys off after some nonsense on stage and bottom is left alone still with the donkey head on and he turns to himself maybe also to the audience and says why do they run away and then he answers his own question. This is a knavery of them to make me afeard. A knavery is like a rascally trick. It's the kind of thing a knave would do to make me afeard. In other words, to frighten me. He thinks they're playing a trick on him. And Snout runs back through and he sees him again and he says, Oh, bottom, thou art changed. Again, there's that theme of transformation really coming to life on stage. And he says to him, What do I see on thee? As in, what do I see on your head? And Bottom says, what do you see? You see an ass head of your own, do you? This is kind of a great corny joke. Of course, Bottom doesn't know that he has the head of an ass on. An ass head is literally a stupid person. If you know the play Twelfth Night, Toby calls Andrew an ass head at the end of that play. And here it may mean something more like your own stupidity. So when you look at me, maybe you see your own foolishness or ridiculousness. Because again, he's calling him out for trying to play a trick on him. And Snout runs off and Quince comes through now. And he sees him again and he says, Bless thee, Bottom, bless thee. Short for, may God bless you. Maybe because you've been cursed. He says, thou art translated. I love when they use this word translated again. Remember Helena used it at the beginning of the play to Hermia? She said she wanted to be transformed into her and she said translated into her. It's another one of these transformations, but it's such a cool word to choose here. And then Quince runs off. And Bottom has another moment alone, perhaps to the audience. This is really great clown material where you can talk directly to the audience. It's what comics like to call crowd work. And Bottom says, I see their knavery. There's that rascally trick again. I see what they're doing. This is to make an ass of me, to fright me if they could. And there's that same stupid joke again. Make an ass of me literally means make me look stupid. But when he has a donkey head on him, it means much more than that. They're trying to frighten me. But he's resolved. He says, but I will not stir from this place. Do what they can. I will not stir. In other words, I won't move or leave this place. Do what they can, no matter what they do to me. So he's not going to get frightened and run around just so that they can laugh at him. He decides instead, I will walk up and down here and I will sing that they shall hear I am not afraid. He just wants to demonstrate to them that he's fine. And how is he going to do that? He's going to sing. The owl's o cock so black of hue with orange tawny bill. The throstle with his note so true, the wren with little quill. And remember, he's singing loud. He wants to demonstrate to them that he's fine. So it's not just for himself, it's for them to hear. And he just starts singing the first song he can think of. And it's a strange and a little bit naughty song. The Azlecock, get your mind out of the gutter, it's a male blackbird. So black of hue, black of color. We just saw that in the reference to Pyramus. With orange tawny bill. Orange tawny means reddish brown. Remember they used it before when they were talking about the beards that they were going to wear in the play? So it's a black bird with an orange bill. The throstle with his note so true. A throstle is just another way to say thrush, another kind of bird, with his note so true. True meaning like melodically exact or spot on. The wren with little quill. Little not in size, but in volume. So he has a tiny or quiet quill, which means his voice. Literally, a quill is a pipe or a flute. So the wren has a much more quiet voice. And he's singing loudly. And that is what wakes up the fairy queen. And this is just like a moment of beautiful dramatic construction because we've forgotten all about her. She's on the stage, but we've been drawn into all this other stuff that's happened while she's been asleep. 
And the moment she sits up, something in the back of our minds as audience members remembers, oh crap, she's going to fall in love with the first thing she sees. And it's going to be this guy. Now one question is, did Puck do this on purpose? Like obviously he wanted to play a trick on these guys, but did he set it up so that Titania would wake up to see him? Remember, Oberon wanted her to fall in love with some kind of disgusting animal, well, here's the disgusting animal now. And her first line is kind of amazing, especially after you've seen this ridiculous-looking creature, who we know to be an actual ridiculous person, singing an equally ridiculous song. And she says, in beautiful poetry, What angel wakes me from my flowery bed? The kind of thing you would say to the most beautiful person you've ever seen. Which, under this spell, Bottom is to her. But he just goes on singing. The finch, the sparrow, and the lark, the plain song cuckoo gray, whose note full many a man doth mark, and dares not answer nay. And the song goes on, it lists more birds. Finch, sparrow, lark, all these songbirds. The plain song cuckoo. Plain song here as an adjective means that it sings a simple tune. Plain song literally referred to old church melodies that would be sung in unison with no harmony whatsoever. And you've probably heard the cuckoo sound. It's two notes over and over, not a very complicated song, and it's not a very beautiful bird. It just sings that same repetitive song. It's gray. And what's different about this song? Whose note full many a man doth mark. Note another word, song. Full many, meaning very many. A man doth mark. Mark meaning notice or pay attention to. And there's kind of a nice pun on note earlier in the line and mark, because they both mean to notice. So many men listen to the song of the cuckoo and dares not answer nay, doesn't dare to say no. So what's the deal with this? Well, cuckoo is the source of the word cuckold, which means someone who gets cheated on. And this may be because the female cuckoo changes partners often, or maybe because the cuckoo lays its eggs in other birds' nests to be raised, which is a great parenting trick. I do not recommend it with humans. So basically what this song is saying is that many men have been cheated on, in other words, heard that word cuckold, and dares not answer nay, doesn't dare to deny it. And he finishes singing this song, and then he starts commenting on the lyrics a little bit. For indeed, who would set his wit to so foolish a bird? Set his wit probably means something like match wits or compare intelligence. Set literally means to bet or gamble. But who would try to match wits with such a stupid bird? Why would you even bother with that? Why would you answer nay? He says, who would give a bird the lie, though he cry cuckoo never so? Give him the lie means accuse him of lying, or try to prove that what he says isn't true, though he cry cuckoo never so. This is a really confusing line, and I think it's pretty hard to make it make sense. One solution is that it might actually be ever so, like forever in this way. So who would accuse this bird of lying, even though he just keeps saying cuckoo forever? Another option is that the bird actually doesn't say it. Like, even if the bird never says cuckoo, why would you accuse him of lying? Regardless, it seems like he's getting pretty deep into the weeds over what is essentially a silly song. And that's the moment where Titania comes up to him. So he is approached by the beautiful queen of the fairies, who has made herself visible to him now, and she starts to talk to him again in beautiful poetry. I pray thee, gentle mortal, sing again. I pray thee, I ask you, gentle mortal, gentle meaning tender or good or even noble, and she calls him mortal, sing again. She says, mine ear is much enamored of thy note, so is mine eye enthralled to thy shape, and thy fair virtue's force perforce doth move me on the first view to say, to swear, I love thee. I mean, the first thing you can see about these lines, other than the fact that she confesses her love to someone almost immediately, is all that stuff about eyes and vision and view. So my ear is much enamored of thy note. Note here meaning singing or voice. So in the same way that my ear loves your voice, my eye is enthralled 
which literally means enslaved to thy shape, to your physical appearance, and thy fair virtue's force. Virtue here means ability or power. It could even mean bravery. And fair usually means beautiful, but here it's basically just pleasing or lovely. So the force of that, perforce, which is a cool pun, it means forcibly, like necessarily. It moves me on the first view, the first time I see you. And there's that vision stuff again to say, to swear, I love thee. So not only am I going to say that I love you, but I'm going to swear it, that I'll love you forever. So it's one thing to see the queen of the fairies in the woods. That's a surprise in the first place. But then she professes her love to you. And Bottom's response is, methinks, mistress, you should have little reason for that. Methinks means it seems to me. Like you should have little reason to swear you love me. What are you talking about? And mistress is the female version of master. He's clearly aware that she is higher class than he is. I mean, notice two things in the language. Number one, he sort of punctures all that beautiful verse with particularly floppy prose. Also, he calls her you, which remember is either formal or it's for a lower class person speaking to an upper class person. So he's obviously surprised and he says, what, you want me? I doubt it. But then he goes back on that. He says, and yet, to say the truth, reason and love keep little company together nowadays. Keep little company as in don't hang around together much. Truer words were never spoken, buddy. It's actually really fun to compare this to the way Lysander was talking when he woke up from the spell and magically fell in love with Helena and talked about how reason was guiding him in falling in love with her. And he talked about how love is always led by reason. Well, Bottom immediately punctures that. He says, actually, reason and love have nothing to do with each other. Why shouldn't the queen of the fairies be in love with me? I'm a good looking guy. And he adds to that, the more the pity that some honest neighbors will not make them friends. So reason and love aren't hanging out. He says it's a pity that some honest neighbors, in other words, some like mutual friends of them who could introduce or reconcile them together. So maybe they could keep some company together. It's kind of a corny joke. And maybe Titania actually laughs at it because she's so in love with him. Surely you, listener, as I, have laughed at a terrible joke told by someone that you wanted to love you. Because when you're in love with someone, everything they say is genius. And then later when you look back on it, you think, that was a stupid joke. So maybe she laughs at him and he says, Nay, I can gleek upon occasion. That's an awesome word. I petition for it to come back into regular use. Gleek, in addition to sounding awesome, means to joke or crack wise. Especially like a really sharp, cutting, satirical joke. So he's saying, you like that? I got jokes. I got all kinds of jokes. And she says, thou art as wise as thou art beautiful. Like you're pretty and you can make awesome jokes too. Oh, you're so smart. You're as smart as you are beautiful which is a pretty awesome joke for an idiot who is half donkey right now. And Bottom is pretty flattered and still kind of weirded out, and he says, not so neither. But if I had wit enough to get out of this wood, I have enough to serve mine own turn. He has a little self-deprecating moment where he says, not so neither. In other words, neither one of those is true at all. I'm not wise and I'm not beautiful. But on the other hand, if I had wit enough to get out of this wood, in other words, if I had intelligence, as in wise, to get out of these woods, I have enough intelligence to serve mine own turn. Serve mine own turn just means do what I want or get what I want. There is sometimes a sexual sense to that, get what I want. And of course, Titania hears that cue of get out of this wood. And she immediately says, out of this wood, do not desire to go. So again, he's still speaking in prose, and she comes out with a pretty long speech of beautiful verse. And notice how twisty this language is. Not do not desire to go out of this wood, but out of this wood do not desire to go. Number one, it's stronger to end the sentence with a verb, and it's also always very strong to end with a long vowel syllable. And it's also really strong to end with a long vowel sound, go. Because what's happening? She's about to start rhyming. So not only is she in verse, she's in rhyme. And part of this is because of the strength of what she says. She is becoming the queen of the fairies again. Remember, she is hugely powerful. How does she finish that rhyme? She says, Thou shalt remain here, whether thou wilt or no. So you're going to remain here with me, whether thou wilt, in other words, whether you want to or no or not. And she lays down the law. She says, I am a spirit of no common rate. 
So she said she's a spirit, although he probably got that from looking at her, but not one from a common, in other words, like a regular or lower class rate, which means rank or value. So she's no normal spirit. The summer still doth tend upon my state. You can immediately hear in that language all the alliteration, summer still state. And what does that mean? The summer still, the summer always doth tend upon. In other words, serves my state, which means my rule or my queenship. Remember, it's midsummer, and she had that long speech when she first showed up about how the seasons depended on her. Well, she's saying she's so important that the summer literally serves her. So she says, I'm really important, and more to the point, and I do love thee, therefore go with me. So I'm really important, and I love you, so you should go with me, not go out of the woods. And if that doesn't work on him, she has another option. She says, I'll give thee fairies to attend on thee, and they shall fetch thee jewels from the deep, and sing while thou on pressed flowers dost sleep. So maybe he's not sufficiently impressed by her commands. So she's going to go to gifts. She's getting a little more desperate. She says, I'll give you fairies to attend on you. In other words, serve or wait on. Sort of like the summer serves her. And how will they serve him? They'll fetch thee jewels from the deep, presumably from the bottom of the ocean, and sing while thou on pressed flowers dost sleep. I guess pressed by his body because he's sleeping on them. So they're going to give him presents. They're going to sing to him while he sleeps, just like they did to her before. And I will purge thy mortal grossness so that thou shalt like an airy spirit go. This is a really interesting line. Grossness is like your material or bodily nature. It means literally your heaviness. But she says she's going to transform him. She's going to purge his mortal grossness so much that thou shalt like an airy spirit go. Go literally means to walk or travel, but here it's more like exist or be. So she's going to transform him from a heavy mortal into an airy spirit. No idea how she's going to do that, but it's pretty awesome. And notice, by the way, that the first rhyme in this speech and the last rhyme in this speech are the same. They're those O sounds, go and no, and then so and go. So the first rhyme and the last rhyme are literally the same word. So remember she promised him attendance? Well, she's going to call for them. She says, peas blossom, cobweb, moat, and mustard seed. These are the names of the fairies. It's good that they actually get names, right? So far, all we had was Oberon, Titania, and Puck, and then fairies number five through seven. But now they get names, and their names all have something in common, which is that they're very small, natural things. So peas blossom is the tiny little flower of a pea plant. If you've ever grown peas, you know that it has these beautiful little flowers. So one of them is called peas blossom. Another one is called cobweb, like the tiny little strands of a spider's web. One is called moat. It's sometimes spelled moth and sometimes spelled M-O-T-E, but it's pronounced the same way. And what it means is a tiny speck. You could get a moat in your eye. There's that line in Hamlet, a moat it is to trouble the mind's eye. Like you got a tiny little speck in the eye of your mind. Same name. And mustard seed. If you've ever either planted mustard or had like that grainy mustard, it's the little tiny seed of a mustard. So all of them are little tiny fairies. And one after another, they say, ready, and I, and I, and I. And then together they say, where shall we go? They're quite a group of backup singers, these fairies. But you can see they almost make up a verse line themselves. And they talk sort of like soldiers. We'll see why in a second. So she commands them. She says, be kind and courteous to this gentleman. You hear those hard K sounds, kind and courteous? It's like she's giving her soldiers an order. Hop in his walks and gamble in his eyes. This is not generally what soldiers do, but whatever. She wants them to hop in his walks. Walks being the paths he walks along. And gamble in his eyes. Gamble means to jump playfully. It's that weird jump that sheep and goats do when they're babies. In his eyes means in his sight, but there's that word eyes again. Feed him with apricots and dewberries. Apricots is another way to say apricots. And dewberries are these juicy dark berries. They're closely related to blackberries. Notice those last two lines, those commands, also have first syllable stress. Hop in his walks. Feed him. Not hop in his walks. Feed him. So they're strenuous commands. And what else are they feeding him? With purple grapes, green figs, and mulberries. I actually have a mulberry tree in my backyard. They're these purple berries that grow on trees. So she's describing all the delicious fruits that they're supposed to feed to him. 
And what else are they supposed to do? The honey bags steal from the humblebees, and for night tapers crop their waxen thighs, and light them at the fiery glowworm's eyes to have my love to bed and to arise. And because this is such beautiful language, we sometimes miss how incredibly violent it is. Okay, so the honey bags steal from the humblebees. You would think a honey bag would be like a bag full of honey that the bee carries along. No, this is what is sometimes called the first stomach or the honey stomach. Bees actually have multiple systems in their body. One place where they can take in nectar from flowers and store it on the way back to the hive from the field. But what's important about this first stomach is that they don't digest it there. Because when they get back, they deposit it into the cells and that's what becomes the honey eventually. And she wants them to steal this from the humblebees, which is another way to say bumblebees. The honey bag is an internal organ. She wants them to disembowel the bumblebees, rip out this honey bag. So it's not just steal it from, it's rip it out of. And not just that, for night tapers, night tapers are candles that you use at nighttime, crop their waxen thighs. Crop here doesn't mean like scrape off, it means chop off their waxen thighs. These are thighs that are covered in beeswax. You know, because they're bees. So cut off their legs so that we can use them as candles and light them at the fiery glowworm's eyes. Glowworms are an insect that glows. It could either refer to a firefly or one of a few different kinds of caterpillars that's luminescent. But she's telling them to use their eyes almost like a fire. Why? To have my love to bed. In other words, to guide him or convey him to bed and to arise when he gets up in the morning. So at dawn and dusk, they'll guide him to and from bed with these bee leg candles. And what does she want them to do when he's asleep? and pluck the wings from painted butterflies to fan the moonbeams from his sleeping eyes. Again, this is such glorious language that you forget the incredibly bloody image in it. Pluck the wings from painted butterflies. So there are these beautifully colorful butterflies, and she wants them to rip the wings off of them, to use them as fans, to fan away any moonbeams that are keeping him awake. So one of the other things you'll notice about the language in this speech is the rhyming. And it's not just single rhymes, it's multiple rhymes. So you have eyes, dewberries, mulberries, bees, and then thighs, eyes, arise, butterflies, eyes, courtesies, which probably originally would have rhymed with eyes. And so three of those rhymes are actually the word eyes, which is such an important image in the play. But the result of all these recurring rhymes is real momentum, which gives you both incredible beauty and incredible violence, and also the sense of how vehement her love for him is. That she would kill any number of insects to make his life wonderful. And her final command to them is, nod to him, elves, and do him courtesies. Nod to him, sort of like a mini bow that you would do to some kind of royalty, elves, in other words, fairies, and do him courtesies. This could mean do courteous things for him, like do good things for him, or it could also mean curtsy to him. That's where the word curtsy comes from. It's short for courtesy. So either way, she's telling them to bow to him, and they immediately follow her command. Peas Blossom says, hail, mortal. And hail is a greeting that you usually use to royalty or some other high-class person. And the other three follow along with hail, hail, hail. And presumably when they do, they nod or curtsy. And Bottom is impressed. Not only are these the first fairies he's seen, but they're treating him awesome. This is the best he's ever been treated in his life. This is probably what he imagines he should be treated like. It's always dangerous when someone with a big ego gets what they think they deserve. And this is Bottom right now. And his response is still pretty meek. He says, I cry your worship's mercy heartily. Cry your mercy means something like, I beg your pardon. And he calls them worships, almost like your honors, almost as though he doesn't think he's worthy of it. He says, I beseech your worship's name. Beseech means I beg for or I ask. But there's something like lower class to upper class about that big word. And he uses that word worship again. And one thing about that term worship is that you usually use it to refer to some sort of local official, like the mayor or some local magistrate. So he very politely and very respectfully asks Cobweb what his name is. And he says, Cobweb? And Bottom replies, I shall desire you of more acquaintance, good Master Cobweb. Notice again how heightened that language is. 
This is sort of how he talks around important people. I shall desire you. In other words, I will request or wish you of more acquaintance. In other words, to get to know you better. And he can't help adding in a little joke. If I cut my finger, I shall make bold with you. Make bold means to take a liberty or presume. And what's this thing about the finger? Well, in a time before band-aids, they used to use cobwebs almost like cotton balls to stop cuts from bleeding because they absorbed a lot. So the next time you cut your finger and you don't have a band-aid lying around, just go down to the basement and grab some cobwebs. And then he turns to the next fairy and says, Your name, honest gentleman. And Peas Blossom says, Peas Blossom? And Bottom continues with the politeness. He says, I pray you, commend me to Mistress Squash, your mother, and to Master Peascod, your father. So he's still being very formal. I think this is how he would talk to the Duke and Duchess. I pray you, in other words, I ask you, commend me, so convey my greetings, to Mistress Squash. Squash here doesn't refer to the vegetable, but it refers to an unripe pea pod. So Mrs. Squash, which is his mother, and Master Peascod. Peascod is a ripe pea pod. So if this fairy's name is Peas Blossom, in other words, the flower of the pea plant, here are two other kinds of pea plant that he's decided are Peas Blossom's parents. And he says, good master Peas Blossom, I shall desire you of more acquaintance too. In other words, I hope we get to know each other better too. And then he turns to the next fairy. Your name, I beseech you, sir. Beseech again being that fancy way of saying, I beg for or I ask you for your name. And the next one says, mustard seed. And Bottom recognizes that too. He says, good master mustard seed, I know your patience well. What's this thing about the patience? It means what you've had to patiently put up with or endure. Why? Because he says, that same cowardly, giant-like ox beef hath devoured many a gentleman of your house. Ox beef is a particularly hilarious way to refer to a male cow. Basically a bull. An ox beef. He's devoured many a gentleman of your house. Well, I'm sure a lot of cows go out eating mustard greens all day long. And he has one more note. He says, I promise you, your kindred hath made my eyes water ere now. Your kindred, in other words, your relatives, other mustards, hath made my eyes water ere now. Ere now just means before this time, now. And how have his... And how have his relatives made his eyes water? Well, presumably, either with sadness that they're getting eaten by the cow, or, and here's the pun, with spiciness, because mustard's very spicy. So that's what made his eyes water, not tears, spicy mustard. And he greets this fairy the same way he greeted the other ones. I desire you of more acquaintance, good Master Mustard Seed. I also want to get to know you better, Master Mustard Seed, which is a great sounding phrase. And this has always disturbed me. Nothing for poor little Moat? Doesn't he get a dumb joke? And I desire you of more acquaintance? Sorry, everyone who plays Moat. You don't get much character. Maybe next time. So after that piece of silly business, Titania's had enough, she says, come wait upon him. Wait upon meaning serve or attend him. Do all those things I commanded you before. And also lead him to my bower. Now, a bower can be a name for sort of a flowery glade, but it can also be a name for a lady's bedroom. Luckily, hers is both. And then to end the scene, she gets a beautiful piece of poetry. She says, The moon, methinks, looks with a watery eye. And when she weeps, weeps every little flower, lamenting some enforced chastity. So she says, the moon, methinks, in other words, it seems to me, looks with a watery eye. What's watery about it? Well, we've heard water in this play before refer to the moon because it controls the tides. But also the moon is like an eye that's full of tears. There's that eye imagery again. And when she weeps, when the tears fall out of her eye, weeps every little flower. This is from that belief that the moon made the dew on the flowers. So when she cries, tears appear on all the flowers. And notice the sound of the language. It's not, and when she weeps, every little flower weeps. Number one, that doesn't particularly work with the rhythm of the line. But number two, you get those two weeps in a row right in the middle of the verse line, where they sort of cross in the middle. And when she weeps, weeps every little flower. So why is everyone weeping? Lamenting some enforced chastity. Enforced means violated or forced to give up. So basically what she's talking about here is rape. 
Remember how the moon and also the goddess of the moon are associated with chastity in this play? Well, it's as though the moon is looking down on the earth and cries when it sees some chaste woman violated. It is a very strange interpolation here. Yes, she's looking up to see the moon, but it's very strange to see the way it's put into this moment in particular. And then she turns back to her fairies and says, tie up my lover's tongue, bring him silently. This can be kind of a good joke because, of course, Bottom doesn't shut up. But also, she's kind of the one enforcing the chastity here. She's tying him up and bringing him to her bed. It's also very forceful in the language. You hear it in those hard T's of tie and tongue. So for a love scene, there's a lot of violence in it. Well, that's the end of part three. Everyone is now drawn into the plot. Things are really rolling. And we'll see in part four that all hell is going to break loose. And you're really going to see the power of the plot and characters that Shakespeare has spent the first half of this play building up. We're really almost exactly at the halfway point, And now he's going to let it all loose. It's like he spent all this time dragging a ball up the hill, and then he's going to let it loose, and the snowball is going to do what snowballs do. So I hope you'll come back for part four. In the meantime, if you like this podcast, I hope you'll take a moment to support it. Go to clearshakespeare.com support, and please kick in a few bucks to make it possible. I'd also really appreciate it if you would like this podcast on iTunes, and even better, write a review. Thanks.